Good morning, everybody. Nice to be with you again this morning. Um, Catherine and I, we serve with OMF, and during the week uh, we do that, and I also teach now and then for an online, for a few online places in Malaysia, Old Testament, uh, and then on Fridays I work as a GP, medical GP. Um, so let's pray before we open God's word and hear from his word. Let's pray. Dear God, open our eyes to see the wonderful truths in your word. Amen. So um, my wife and I used to watch a TV series called Elementary, which you can see on the next slide. In one episode, Sherlock Holmes and Joan Watson couldn't find a criminal. He was hiding, but he'd left his fingerprints on a car windscreen as he fled. So they ran his fingerprints through a database and they caught the criminal. Now, as you listen to Esther 3 to 4, did you hear any mention of God? Did you hear any mention of God? No. In fact, he's not mentioned in the whole book of Esther. He doesn't do anything in the book of Esther. Or does he? Maybe God's hand is hidden. Maybe we'll find his fingerprints in the narrative. Well, God is not a criminal, but this morning, let's look for God's fingerprints in the five scenes of Esther 3 to 4. And as we look for God's fingerprints, maybe we'll develop a way of viewing our lives that will be helpful when we are suffering persecution, just as the Jews were. Scene one, Mordecai angers Haman. Now, when we left the narrative last week, Mordecai had just foiled an assassination plot against King Xerxes. But as the curtain is raised on, on this scene, we don't find Mordecai promoted as we might expect, but Haman is promoted. Immediately, things become more tense. King Xerxes commands his servants at the gate to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But one person doesn't follow the king's demand. Why not? No reason is given for Mordecai's refusal. There's nothing in the Old Testament law that forbids Mordecai from bowing. Paying respects to someone doesn't mean that you are treating them as a god. Well, maybe Mordecai just doesn't like Haman. Or maybe Mordecai is bitter that Haman was promoted instead of himself. Anyway, the king's servants are as puzzled as we are about Mordecai's refusal to bow. So they keep pestering him and ask the question that is on our minds. Why do you disobey the king's command? When Mordecai explains to them that it is because he's a Jew, they report it to Haman. And what is Haman's response? He is furious, and his planned retaliation seems to be way over the top. Once he learns that Mordecai is a Jew, killing him alone is not enough. Haman looks for a way to kill all of Mordecai's people. He wants to wipe out all the Jews. He wants to destroy all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. Now, it's something like the nine kinship exterminations in ancient China. This was a punishment for the most serious offences, such as treason. Not only is the offender killed, but also nine kinship groups related to the offender. 
such as parents, grandparents, children, cousins, and so on. Up to nine kinship groups related to the offender. But Haman's retaliation against Mordecai is even worse than this. He not only wants to wipe out Mordecai, not just nine kinship groups related to him, but his whole people. For what? Refusing to bow down to him. Why such an extreme response from Haman? And why did Mordecai refuse to bow in the first place? If we look closely at this passage, we might find a likely reason. Verse 1 describes Haman as an Agagite. What is an Agagite, you ask? Agag was the Amalekite king who was spared by King Saul. Saul's refusal to obey God by executing King Agag was a major factor that cost him his kingship, 1 Samuel 15. Mordecai, as you can see here, is from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as Saul. One of his ancestors is Kish, King Saul's father. So we see that there's bitterness between Haman's ancestors and Mordecai's ancestors. But the hatred goes back even further. When Israel was traveling through the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites came out to fight against Israel, Exodus 17. So Haman and Mordecai hate each other's guts because their people have hated each other's guts for generations. As the lights dim on the first scene, we wonder, can we find God's fingerprints in this scene? Is there a hidden hand arranging a repeat of history? Will this hand somehow work even through this ancient feud? Scene two, Haman hoodwinks Xerxes. So Haman is casting lots, or per, P-U-R, as we can see on the next slide. He's superstitious and wants to find the most auspicious date for his scheme. Perhaps, even as a pagan, he can sense a hand guiding history. Some Chinese in our society might try to get their children born in in an auspicious year. Or a couple might consult the Chinese calendar to find the best date to get married. Haman probably used an astrologer to cast the lot for the best month for his planned holocaust. With the date set, Haman approaches the king with his request. Now have a look at this slide and see how Haman uses a mixture of truths, half-truths, and lies. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Truth. But notice how Haman does not name this certain people. He depersonalizes the Jews. Second, they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. Half-truth. The true half. Their customs were different because they followed Old Testament law. False half. To keep her Jewish identity secret, uh, Esther must have obeyed the king's laws. This would have meant breaking some Old Testament laws, including marrying a foreign king, not keeping the Sabbath, 
and eating defiled king, uh, food in the king's court. Three, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Lie. We know that Mordecai had just saved the king's life at the end of chapter 2. And then to put icing on the cake, Haman throws in a bribe. Giving money to win a contract is not just something that is done today. But notice that the amount is not peanuts. How much does Haman offer as a bribe? 10,000 talents of silver. That is 340 tons. That is a mountain of silver. Over half the yearly tax revenue of the entire Persian Empire. Maybe Haman thought he would seize this much from the Jews after he had wiped them out. Shrewdly, Haman hoodwinks King Xerxes into agreeing to annihilate God's people. Unfortunately, his hatred against God's people is not limited to the time of Esther. It happened all throughout Israel's history. Pharaoh of Egypt tried to kill all the Israelite boy babies. The Amalekites tried to wipe out the Israelites on their way to Sinai. The Philistines and other nations attacked Israel in the Promised Land. The people of God in the Old Testament were the Israelites and then the Jews after the exile. The people of God in the New Testament are Christians. Even today, there are people out to persecute and kill God's people. When we served with Al-Mif in Malaysia for eight years, we met Muslim background believers who met in house churches for fear of their lives. And there was actually a girl in our church who had fled Egypt because of persecution. She couldn't return home because if she did, her family would kill her for becoming a Christian. Our persecutors will use truths, half-truths, and lies to incite the authorities against us. Jesus described the devil as a murderer from the beginning, who uses lies since he is a liar and the father of lies. Slander was used against Jesus to kill him. Slander was used against Jesus' followers. Slander was used against the church in Smyrna. So sadly, Haman is not just a one-off. Haman types have slandered and tried to kill God's people all throughout history. They will continue to do so today. Back to our narrative. So we see that the deal is sealed. The king hands over his signet ring, a symbol of his authority, along with the money and the Jews for Haman to do with the people as he pleases. This is ominous. Haman is now unmasked as the enemy of the Jews. So what he pleases is going to be disastrous for the Jews. Unless a hidden hand is working even through Haman. Scene three, the edict is dispatched. The edict is drawn up, as we can see in our next slide, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. Wow. Ruthless. It sends a chill down our spines. 
The decree is dispatched by royal mail to every corner of the Persian Empire. But look at the contrast described at the end of the scene. The king and Haman celebrate the edict, but the people are bewildered and confused by this death warrant. As Haman and the king sip their wine, let's consider. Could there be another power at work behind this terrible decree? Now, the timing of the events gives us two hints that there is a hidden hand behind what is happening. First, the decree is written on the 13th day of the first month. Now, this is the day before Passover. So, perhaps we wonder, will there be another deliverance like the Exodus? Second hint, the date that he set for the genocide is the 13th day of the 12th month, 11 months in the future. This date was set by Haman by casting lots. So we recall Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And verse 14 says that the decree is proclaimed to all the peoples to be ready for the day. And so we wonder, could it be that a hidden hand has set this date to give the Jews more time to respond to this decree? Even so, Haman is responsible for his evil intentions and actions. But perhaps we find fingerprints in this scene also. Scene four, the Jews mourn. Now look at Mordecai's response. What do you find missing in Mordecai's response? Also, look at the response of the Jews in the Persian Empire. Is it missing with them also? Sorry, what's that? Ah, they didn't call on God. Yes, so what's missing? What's missing is calling on God or prayer. Yeah. Now, some people suggest that the Jews were Jews in name only. So they didn't pray at all. Even if this were true for the rest of their lives, in times of crisis, we would expect them to pray. Some non-believers even pray when they're desperate. In the rest of the Bible, national crisis often leads to mourning and prayer with fasting. The annihilation the Jews were facing probably did prompt Mordecai and the Jews to repent, repent and pray. But prayer is not mentioned. So the one to whom they pray is hidden. Yet perhaps he has left his fingerprints behind. Scene 5, Mordecai persuades Esther. All the Jews mourn except for one, Esther. She's blissfully unaware of things taking place outside the palace. When her maids and eunuchs tell her about Mordecai's loud wailing, she tries to soothe him by sending him clothes. This is like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Her treatment is unsuitable because she has no idea what the problem is. 
But through her eunuch, Hatak, she finds out about Haman's decree. Then Mordecai commands Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Verse 4. But to plead on behalf of her people would reveal Esther's Jewish identity to the king. What is Esther's reply? Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. So we see here that Esther gives three reasons for not going to plead with the king. Which of these three do you think is the main reason? One, it's against the law. Two, she'll die if she breaks the law. Or three, the king doesn't fancy her. One, two, or three? Two? Two? Any other suggestions? It could be two. But remember that King Xerxes chose Esther out of all the beautiful women in his empire to be his queen. I think it's three because it now seems that his affection has frozen over. She has not been summoned to go to the king for a one whole month. Most likely, other women have been warming his bed. Esther refuses because she's not sure if the king will accept her approach. That's what I think. In any case, Mordecai isn't so easily put off, as we see in the next slide. He says, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's house will perish. So maybe she's thinking, I'm the queen, I am safe in this palace. And anyway, if I keep my Jewish identity secret, I will be safe from Haman's decree. Mordecai stops this line of thinking, quick smart. So Mordecai says, if you keep quiet about your Jewish identity, you still will not be safe. If you don't act on behalf of your people, they will still be delivered. Deliverance will come, he says, from another place. But you will perish and your father's house with you. Mordecai is probably saying that she will be punished for not acting. In short, Mordecai says to Esther, You think your life is at risk if you go to the king? Your life is at risk if you don't. Faced with this cold, hard reality, Esther has no choice, does she? Then Mordecai closes his case in verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says, think about it, Esther. You were an orphaned Jewish girl plucked from obscurity to royalty. Could it be that you have been put in this place of influence for such a time as this? 
could a hidden hand be behind your royal position for such a time as this? Esther realizes what she must do. She commands Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf for three days. Her maids will do the same. Again, there is no mention of prayer, but for the Jews, prayer goes hand in hand with fasting. Second, she risks going to the king. As she says in verse 16, and if I perish, I perish. She's not sure if she'll be successful. She takes the initiative to act, but she knows that she cannot control the outcome. So let's spend some time reflecting together. In these chapters, God is not mentioned. He is hidden, but his hand is still active. He has left his fingerprints all over the narrative. God is not hidden for those of us with eyes to see his fingerprints. Sometimes that is our experience of God, isn't it? At times we can't see God working in our lives. Sometimes we only see his fingerprints as we look back on our lives. But you may be wondering, why has the author written God out of the story? Here are three reasons I think God is hidden. First, the Jews felt as if God was absent. They were outside the promised land. They were a minority people with a minority religion living within the Persian Empire. Maybe we feel like this sometimes in Australia. Only one in ten attend church regularly in Australia. Maybe we feel that God is hidden. We plod along day by day without God doing anything spectacular. Many of us won't see a miracle of God. Many of us won't hear God speaking to us directly. But the book of Esther reveals that even when God seems absent, he isn't. He's active in everything, although mostly hidden. His hand works through the everyday events in our lives. Second reason why I think God is hidden. By hiding God in his actions, he places emphasis on us. Our action, our initiative, our courage. Sometimes we need to act with initiative for the sake of God and his people. God can fulfill his purposes without us, but often he chooses to use us. It's not that he needs to use us or his plans will go out the window. Yet he chooses us and to use our initiative and our actions to accomplish his plans. But even if we don't act, God will still accomplish his purposes. As Mordecai says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Sometimes God will accomplish his purposes through us. At other times, he will accomplish his purposes despite us. What do you think? I find this comforting, don't you? Even if we fail to stand up as Christians, God will still accomplish his purposes. Yet if we don't act, it might mean that we lose out on God's blessing. As Mordecai says to Esther in her situation, but you and your father's family will perish. 
So, as we face suffering for the sake of being a Christian, pray like our lives depend on it. Ask others to pray and perhaps even to fast for you. Then act with courage and initiative. Third reason why I think God is hidden. Like Esther, the Jews in the Persian Empire might have been tempted to become just like everybody else. Follow the Persian customs, follow the Persian law, follow the Persian religion. Perhaps some of them were God's people in name only. So the book of Esther doesn't mention God's name for the audience to fill in where God should be. God's people fill in where they should have fasted and prayed. God's people fill in where Mordecai should have said that deliverance will come from God. And so, by not mentioning God, the narrative uses a form of reverse psychology to fire up patriotism and loyalty in the hearts of God's people. In particular, not mentioning God spurs us to identify as God's people, even if it might bring us suffering or even death. As we face persecution, we may be tempted not to identify with God's people. As a church, we may be tempted to keep silent instead of speaking up for Christ. And each of us might want to keep silent instead of speaking up for Christ at work or school or among friends or family or before the authorities. But as we stand up as Christians, we look forward to receiving an even better crown than Esther. As Jesus promises, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Let's pray. Dear Sovereign Lord, at times you seem absent to us, but your hidden hand is always at work. In times of persecution or decision, Help us to trust you in prayer. Help us stand up as Christians and help us to act with courage and initiative. For your sake, amen.